Well, we have sung praises to our Lord for the birth of our Savior, and it is a birth that only has meaning because of the death and resurrection and ascension of our Savior, and so we return to our study in John's Gospel. Join me in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we find ourselves where we left off in verses 31 through 42, John 19 verses 31 through 42, and we are moving in John's account of Christ's life from the death of Christ on the cross to the aftermath of Christ's death, specifically the burial of Christ in a tomb. John 19, 31 through 42. And John records Jesus' burial for two reasons. Two reasons. The first is a historical reason. John is confirming, he's confirming that when, verse 30, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit, he's confirming that Jesus actually died, that Jesus' life actually ended. You only bury dead men, that's the point. And this is an essential inclusion to John's story since all of Christianity, all of Christianity is based upon the actual dying of Jesus. J.C. Ryle put it this way, we must all see on a moment's reflection that without a real death, there could be no real sacrifice. That without a real death, there could be no real resurrection. That without a real death and real resurrection, the whole Christianity is a house built on sand and has no foundation at all. As you look at the Gospels, not just in Mark, but all of the Gospels, what you find is that each Gospel records the burial of Jesus. It shows its importance. This only happens 16 times in all of Jesus' life where all of the Gospels, all four, record the same event. Jesus' burial is one of them. So the importance of Jesus' Burial to the gospel writers and the words they choose. The word tomb, it occurs 28 times in the gospels, 28 times compared to the word cross, that only occurs 11 times in the gospels, three times as much. You look at the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, think of Isaiah 53, it includes the burial of the coming Christ. Of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of those things that are of first importance. Well, what are they? For one, it is that Christ died for our sins. We would not argue that point. But then he adds this note, and that he was buried, confirmation that he actually died. When you take a look at the four gospels together, we know more about the burial of Jesus than we do about any other burial throughout all of ancient history. We know more about the burial of Christ than we do any other Old Testament hero. All we know of Adam's burial is he was 939 years when he died. That's it. All the Old Testament says about Abraham's burial is that Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, and he was gathered to his people. One verse. 
Burial of Joseph, one verse. The burial of John the Baptist, one verse. Yet John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was the greatest man born of woman. But when we get to Jesus, this changes. The details of Christ's burial, they are emphasized. They are of first importance. Why? For a variety of reasons. For one, because the wages of sin is death. That has been the warning since the fall of man. The day that you eat of it, you will die. Genesis 5, and they died over and over again. The wages of sin is death. And thus, for Christ to take sin upon himself for others, he must die in our place. He must pay that death sentence. Two, the burial of Christ is emphasized because the resurrection of Jesus demands the actual death of Jesus. Again, back to Ryle's quote, this goes without saying. If Jesus does not die, he does not resurrect. And according to Paul, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? It's in vain. It's meaningless. There's no hope for you. In fact, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. There's no saving substitute. And we are of all men most to be pitied. Without death, there is no payment for sin. Without death, there is no resurrection to life. And thus, without the actual death of Jesus, there is no hope. And every gospel promise is robbed of its power. So this is one reason why John does not pass over Jesus' burial, but instead gives it almost as much space, almost as much space as he does the actual crucifixion of Jesus. It is to confirm the dying of Christ, which sets the stage for chapter 20 and his death-conquering resurrection. But... There is another reason John records the burial of Jesus here at the end of chapter 19. It's a theological reason, a theological reason. And that is to emphasize the glorious identity of the one who just died on the cross. Look over to the end of John 20 in verse 31. Everything that John has written is so that you may believe that Jesus is glorious his identity, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, when John records the burial of Christ, it is so that we believe that he is the Son of God. So here's the paradox now. We will see the glory of Christ through the death of Christ. You'll see the glory and majesty of Christ through the defeat of Christ. And the way John does this is brilliant. He records details, details that are not found in any other gospel. He records these historical details of the dead body of Jesus hanging lifeless on the cross. It seems like he has been defeated 
But then he will connect, through those details, connect the aftermath of Jesus' death with four messianic prophecies. Four messianic prophecies. One prophecy Jesus made about himself while on earth. And then three Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. Each prophecy amazingly fulfilled by a dead Jesus. Each prophecy fulfilling that purpose statement. Believe that he is the son of God, glorious in his identity. Each prophecy showing his majesty. So what follows in these 12 verses is a historical event grounded on an eyewitness account filled with immense Christological meaning. John's point is this. Jesus' death was no ordinary death. Jesus' death was no ordinary death. Why? Because Jesus is no ordinary person. That's the point. Read the text with me starting in verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's unpack it this way. By noting four glorious identities of Jesus, each based upon John's eyewitness account. We see that in verse 35. Note it again. He who has seen, has testified. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth. You see the emphasis so that, here's the purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Son. Again, details Jesus had nothing to do with since he's dead. Seemingly irrelevant events that happen to Jesus, yet details that show just how glorious he is. Let's look at the first two 
this morning begin with glorious identity number one. Glorious identity number one, Jesus is the final Passover lamb who alone shields the sinner from God's wrath. Jesus is the final Passover lamb who alone shields the sinner from God's wrath. Begin in verse 31. Then the Jews, the religious leaders of the land, they've had their thirst for Jesus' blood quenched. Because it was the day of preparation, this is Friday, the day the Jews would prepare to celebrate the Sabbath. Sabbath would start at sundown. So that the bodies would not remain on the cross overnight on the Sabbath There's a reference now to Old Testament law that would not allow a dead body of an executed criminal to remain on an execution stake overnight. This goes back to Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. There's the law. Why? So that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So do not miss the hypocrisy we see here. The hypocrisy of these religious leaders. They are the same ones, same ones who have done everything they could do to find an innocent man guilty of a trumped up charge. They're the ones who have manipulated the judicial system to get their way because of their own jealousy. Yet now in verse 31, in their feigned piety, they want to obey God's law. Especially, continue verse 31, especially because that Sabbath was a high day, a special Sabbath that fell within the Passover week Celebration. This is hypocrisy at its height. This is the danger of legalism. Obey outwardly the law. And yet inwardly, as Jesus says, your heart is far from him. However, these Jewish leaders, they have a problem. Because the Romans couldn't have cared less about the Deuteronomy 21 prohibition. Their main concern was to inflict as much punishment upon their crucified victim as was possible. This is why Rome would often leave crucified victims on their cross for days. It was public. It was continual. It was a warning. Do not threaten Roman rule. It was meant to inflict further pain upon the victim. And it's a cruel form of death. Part of the cruelty that we see here was for wild animals throughout these days to gnaw on the victim, which is historical. To have vultures pick at the body, it's cruelty. And yet there was a provision in Roman law, a provision, that if death needed to happen quicker, then an iron mallet could be used to break the legs of the victim. All of this historical fact, this was actually a provision that has been documented through archaeology, 1968. 
A first century crucified victim was on earth. It showed one of his legs as being fractured, the other leg being broken into pieces. Eyewitness account from John. And once the victim's legs were broken, shock would then set in. The victim could no longer push himself up to breathe and he would quickly suffocate to death. That's the Jewish leader's request at the end of verse 31. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, taken away and thrown into the Jerusalem garbage dump. That's their plan. One commentator summarized it. There is no mercy, no clemency, no compassion. The Jewish leaders want to finish off the Son of God before it comes to their precious Sabbath. And here's the hypocrisy. It is a Sabbath designed so that they could worship God, not kill him. Hypocrisy at its height. So apparently... Between verses 30 and 31, the religious leaders have left. They left before Jesus said, it is finished. They left before Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They left before Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, why do they leave? Why do they leave? Answer. Because no one was expecting Jesus to die so quickly. It's not how crucifixion works. Again, Christ's death is no ordinary death. He's no ordinary person. Christ is the Lord of life. The Lord of life. And because he is the Lord of life, he could relinquish his life when he saw fit. He's in complete control. Saw that back in John 10. What's the promise? No one has taken my life away from me. I lay down my life on my own initiative. I have that authority to lay down my life. He is the Lord of life. And now that he has exhausted his father's wrath against sin, for all who come to him in saving faith, there is no longer any reason for Jesus to continue living And so he laid down his life. He returns to his father in victory. And yet the Jewish leaders, Pilate, they know none of this. They know none of this. So Pilate allows the leaders to do what they want to do. He's already succumbed to the religious leaders' demand earlier for death, for crucifixion. And so once again, he gives the leaders what they want. He orders... Here in verse 32, the soldiers to break the legs of the victim. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But, and here's the detail now, underline it, here's the detail. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. What seems to be inconsequential of a detail on the surface. This becomes highly significant. Drop down to verse 36. Here's John's interpretation. 
For these things came to pass, to what? To fulfill the scripture. None of the soldiers' actions were by accident. None of John's details are insignificant. In this case, not breaking the legs of Jesus was fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46, quoted here. Not a bone of him shall be broken. It's a Passover lamb text. Listen to Exodus 12 in its context. Exodus 12, starting verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, remember they're fleeing Egypt. This is the ordinance. Here are the requirements of the Passover. And you understand the scene. God is commanding the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and then smear that lamb's blood over the doorposts of their house. Why? Because it was a sign of deliverance. Because verse 23 of Exodus 12, the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, kill every firstborn son within their household, But notice when he sees the blood of that slaughtered lamb, when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer, the angel of the Lord, to come in to your house to smite you. Sacrifice a lamb, smear its blood, so that God will pass over your house, not in judgment, but in mercy. Not to inflict death, but to grant life. And God was clear. It could not be any lamb. It could not be any lamb. No. Exodus 12, 46. The slaughtered lamb had to meet certain requirements. It is to be in in a single house. Each lamb was for a particular household. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house. Nor are you, here's the pertinent detail, John's drawing us back to, nor are you to break any bone of it. It needs to remain perfect even after death. It needs to remain unblemished. It's repeated in Numbers 9. In the second month of the 14th day at twilight, they shall observe it, the Passover feast, They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it according to all the statue of the Passover. They shall observe it. It's an amazing detail. It's an amazing detail. And just think of what's taking place in John 19. There are the chief priests sacrificing the Passover lambs in the temple while Jesus dies. And they're making sure not to break the lamb's legs. And here in John 19, outside the camp, outside the city, here now are the Roman soldiers doing the exact same thing for the final Passover lamb. It's an amazing detail. And this detail of Jesus' unbroken bones, it completes John's Passover emphasis throughout the gospel. Who is Jesus? If you are going to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who do you believe him to be? He is the final Passover sacrifice. 
It's been emphasized throughout the gospel. John 1, here's how we begin. John the Baptist declaring Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb who will cover you from God's anger against your sin. In John 2, we are told the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John 6 reminds us of another Passover celebration. John 12 places Jesus' anointing for death as happening six days before Passover. This is a Passover anointing, Passover preparation. In John 13, John grounds Jesus' final days within the feast of Passover. John 13, 1, the feast of Passover, and Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knows he's the final Passover sacrifice. Later in John 13, Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his apostles. Remember what he said, this is my blood, this is my blood. So throughout this entire gospel, the Passover has taken center stage, center stage, and now when Jesus dies, all of that Passover imagery comes to fruition. Look back to verse 29. Verse 29, when we're told the soldiers put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to Jesus' mouth. That's the very plant the Israelites used to smear the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. To now what we see in verse 36. That just like the Passover lambs died without any broken bones, so too did Jesus and must Jesus if he's going to be the final Passover lamb. And no, Jesus has nothing to do with this. He's dead. So as John watches his Savior hang lifeless on the cross, he sees the symbolism. As he writes this and looks back, he sees the symbolism. And he begins to grasp the significance. And every Passover celebration he had been a part of, it begins to make sense. Who is Christ? He is the lamb slain. And the application for us today of Jesus fulfilling this Passover lamb imagery, the applications are immense. This is no small detail. For one, it means that only Christ's blood, only Christ's blood, only Christ's death applied to your account smeared over your life through faith, only Christ's death can shield you from God's coming and certain wrath against sin. It is coming. John 3, are told, we are told, the wrath of God hangs over the head of the sinner. It's coming. It's certain. But there's a lamb who can appease God's righteous anger against sin. There's a sacrifice that can cause his fury to fall on another, and that's Christ, and only Christ. A second application. It means that there are no more sacrifices for sin that can be offered. No more sacrifice. Christ is the final offering. His death is the final 
payment. That is why Paul can write, Christ is our Passover. He's our Passover. That's why Hebrews says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's always pointing ahead to this final sacrifice. Only Christ is the offering. It is the offering of the body of Christ once for all. That takes away sin. And yet in our pride, what do men try to do? They try to appease God in some way. Sacrifice something for him in order to be right in his eyes. There is one sacrifice. And then there's application number three. Jesus being the final Passover lamb means that only Christ's death can grant you life. Only Christ's death can grant you life. Goes back to John 20. I write these things that you may have life. Listen to what one commentator said. As the Passover lamb brought life to the Israelite firstborn males, so Jesus brings eternal life to all for whom he dies. That's why Peter wrote, you were not redeemed. You are not granted life with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. Where does reconciliation to God come? Where's that eternal life? How is it given? Here's how. It is through precious blood. Precious death as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? Take, his, take away his people's sins. The angel at the birth points to this time, this death, this cross, this burial. This is the first glorious identity of Jesus John sees as Christ hangs lifeless on the cross. He sees Christ as the final Passover lamb who alone shields the sinner from God's wrath. Leads into verse 34. And a second glorious identity, number two here. Jesus is the son who sends the Holy Spirit to his people. Jesus is the son who sends the Holy Spirit to his people. Let's back up a little. Remember the recurring promise Jesus offered his apostles and us by extension the night before his crucifixion. Why did his apostles need not sorrow though Jesus was about to die? Why would they not have to cower in fear even though he was leaving them and gospel hatred was on the horizon? Remember this from John 14 and John 15. The answer Jesus gives is this, because when he leaves, he will send his spirit. That's why we need not fear. That's why our heart can be encouraged, comforted. Remember Jesus' promise, again, the night before his death. Remember what he says, John 14. I will ask the Father after I die, resurrect, ascend. I will ask 
the Father, and he will give you another helper, a helper like me. This helper will do for you what I did for you. And this helper will be given to you and will be with you forever, forever. Who is it? It is the spirit of truth. That's the promise. John 15 repeated, when the helper, the spirit who Christ will send once he returns to heaven, when the helper comes, you will testify. You will not fear. You will testify. Spirit will give you a gospel boldness. John 16, an amazing promise. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. We're like, to our advantage? We want Jesus here now. It's to our advantage. How? Why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you and indwell you and seal you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All of these are promises of the coming spirit. Spirit comes, he will calm his apostles' fears, he will enliven their gospel boldness, he will fuel their future work. Well, back to verse 34. It is this promise of Christ sending his spirit that John is reminded of. Notice the detail John records, and we'll build this. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers. Maybe the soldier's angry here. The death has robbed him of the opportunity to wield that mallet to make his victim suffer further. Maybe he's looking just to simply confirm Jesus' death in a most brutal of ways. Whatever the case, this soldier having not done what he was commanded to do to Jesus by Pilate. He did not do what he was commanded to do, break the legs. He now does something he does not have the authority to do to Jesus. Verse 34, he pierced Jesus' side with a spear. Takes a wooden spear, about three and a half feet long, iron spearhead at its tip. He shoves it through Jesus' side. In today's language, this would be called a random act of violence. It's performed by an evil, rogue, sinister soldier, an act, by the way, that has no precedent in any historical sources as taking place during crucifixion. This is new. Again, he didn't do what Pilate commanded him. He does what he has no authority to do. And yet it is an evil thrust that immediately, here's the detail now, that immediately caused blood and water to flow out of Jesus' side. That's the detail, only here. So why does John record this? Well, from a purely medical standpoint, here is proof that Jesus died. Again, essential to the gospel. There's some debate as to what actually happened. The spear may have pierced Jesus' heart through the stomach and the lungs causing blood and water to flow. Another option is that the spear pierced the heart. Fluid that looked like water came out. Whatever the details, 
Certainly this confirms that Jesus is dead. Certainly. But I think there's more going on here. Because, back to verse 30, John has already confirmed Jesus' death. Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's been confirmed. Jesus is dead. He's confirmed Jesus' death by the soldiers not breaking Jesus' legs. So why record this detail? Why mention the flow of blood, particularly the flow of water coming out of Jesus' body? Why record that answer? Because John sees theological symbolism here. He sees a picture. Just like he saw a picture of Jesus' legs not being broken, he sees a theological picture here, a living parable, call it. It's not the first time John has done this. Back to John 13, remember, Jesus washes the apostles' feet. John records that in such a way he sees a picture, a a living parable of Jesus' incarnation and and then the cross. In much the same way, John sees the flowing of water from Jesus. This is a picture, again, a living parable. Put it this way, this is a reminder. A reminder of something Jesus promised he would do once he returned to the Father, and that's the sending of the Spirit. Where's the connection? Listen to John 7. John 7, verse 37. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his, this is referring to Jesus now, from his innermost being, And a literal translation here would be from his belly, from his person, will flow what? Rivers of living water. And now the question is, what is the water that Jesus is talking about? Verse 39, when he spoke this, he was speaking of the spirits. There's the water, the spirits whom those who believed in him were to receive, like flowing a river of water. The Spirit would be given to all who are Christ's. The Spirit will come. But notice what Jesus says in this promise, what John actually says. For the Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. The promise of the Spirit coming Flowing like water, the promise necessitates Jesus dying. Necessitates Jesus dying. He must die, he must resurrect, he must ascend. Then the Spirit comes. The Son asks for the Spirit to be sent. And overflowing like water, he comes to his people. John is very symbolic. He's very picturesque throughout this entire gospel. I think here John records this specific detail of water flowing out of Jesus' belly, out of his side, to bring us back to John 7 in that promise. There's theological symbolism. This is a picture, a reminder, a living parable of what Jesus promised to do only after his death. 
only after he ascends to the Father. John's point is this. John's point is this. Even though Jesus hangs lifeless on the cross, he hangs lifeless, dead, seemingly defeated by his enemies. Here's the application. Jesus' promise to send his spirit, that remains, that has not been defeated or annulled. And just think how John has connected the spirit to water throughout the gospel. John 3, if you are going to enter his kingdom, you must be born of what? Water and spirit. Water and spirit, the two are linked. Goes back to Ezekiel 36. John 4, Jesus describes eternal life as water. John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, the spirit that I will send, shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The promise of the Spirit's coming. Where does Jesus get these connections between water and Spirit? It's the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, where God promises this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. What's the water? Who's the water? Here's who. I will put my spirit within you. I will send my spirit to you. He will regenerate you. He will seal you. He is the life-giving spirit. In fact, John might even have had Jesus' pierced side here in mind when he wrote 1 John 5. Listen to this. For there are three that testify. There are three that testify of the uniqueness of Christ, the glory of Christ. Three that testify. Who are they? The Spirit and the water and the blood. Put it all together. What you find is that John sees Jesus as no mere man. He sees him as the fulfillment of the final Passover lamb. And he sees him as the son of God who will one day send the spirit to his people. He is the one, even in death, he is the one who will ask the father to send the helper. And upon that request, the Father will send the third member of the Trinity and he will come to us, Christ's people. It's an amazing gift, an amazing promise. It's a gift that can only be given through the request of the Son. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one and only Son of God. And this is exactly what you see happen when the book of Acts opens. The fountains are open, the Spirit is sent And even today, when we come to Christ in saving faith, the Spirit comes to us and seals us and sanctifies us. The promise remains even today. Here's the glorious identity of Christ. Identity number two. Jesus is the Son who sends the Holy Spirit to seal and sanctify us. Comfort and calm us. 
to embolden and convict us. There are two more details we will note next week, but for now there is one adequate conclusion. Application. How do we apply these two identities? Variety of ways, but here's the conclusion for this morning. And we're going to sing it in just a moment. Hallelujah, what a savior. Why? Because he is our king. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Let us come and what? And adore him. Even in death, he's the glorious son. Father, you have given us a reminder of just how precious our Savior is. Father, you have given us a picture of what you do for every believer. You seal us with your Spirit forever. Father, you have given us hope in the midst of death. Yes, Jesus died, but you are still at work. And details were being worked out to perfection. Using the soldier's acts of sin. And yet through all of them, they pointed to the glory of Jesus. We praise you for your sovereignty, for your goodness, for your love, your mercy, your compassion on us, your grace. I pray that we would indeed come and adore you through our Savior by the power and work of your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.